Athena Dixon, a co-host of the New Books and Poetry podcast via the New Books Network. Today, we're speaking with Sarah Sala. Sarah Sala is a poet, educator, and native of Michigan with degrees from the University of Michigan and New York University. She is the recipient of fellowships from Poets House, the Ashbury Homeschool, and Sundress Academy for the Arts. Her work appears in Balm, Poetry Ireland Review, Michigan Quarterly Review, and the Southampton Review, among others. The founding director of Office Hours Poetry Workshop and assistant poetry editor for the Bellevue Literary Review, she teaches expository writing at New York University and lives in Washington Heights with her husband. Thank you for joining us today, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. So your book, which is Devil's Lake, um, is forthcoming this summer. Is that correct? Yes, August 11th uh, from Tolson Books. And so I usually like to start these interviews with a general question about how the writer came to be, because oftentimes we understand that the book itself overshadows the journey to the page. Um, But we all know that writers exist outside of that and before in the final draft as well. So I want to touch on that to start. So kind of can you give us a history of your writing, where it began and how you fell in love with it? Sure. Uh, and just like you said, it, it's taken me almost 10 years to compile this book. And in some ways, it feels unreal to have a physical object in front of me. Um, but yeah, I started um, writing in undergrad. I had never read a poetry collection um, until I think at my sophomore year or junior year of college. So I grew up thinking I was a fiction writer. Um, and I grew up reading books that were mostly written by men. Um, and I, and I wrote male protagonists until I realized that I could, you know, begin writing my own stories and, and writing queer poems and, and poems that uplift all sorts of folks. So it's been a long journey. And I think one of the biggest things that I've learned that I always knew is that so many different hands will touch a book. And that every person who helps, you know, is, is putting in their own labor and time. So if anyone is celebrating me, they're celebrating all my mentors and teachers and, and family that's that's helped me with this. And so was there um, a particular catalyst for this collection? Um, since you said it took about 10 years total to put together, kind of where did it start? And how did you kind of figure out that it was finished or was ready for the world? That's a great question. Uh, So this is my first collection. And I I think I was just writing poems to begin with. And then in 2014, I started thinking about compiling a collection. And you kind of look and see, well, what are the major themes, right? Um, What I saw was queerness in nature. There's a lot of poems about gun violence that I've been compiling. Um, But then I also didn't really know what the book was going to be for a long time. Um, And I think I'm the kind of person that is just like, okay, great, I'm just going to do it and muscle it. Uh, but the book really wanted um, an extended attention. It wanted to unspool for a long time. Uh, so I actually started writing a second book uh, and kind of, you know, I was still submitting this one, uh, but I walked away for a little while. And then when it got picked up, it was really wonderful that it was like I worked with a mentor um, kind of as a manuscript coach to go through 10 pages at a time and really figure out what is the heart of the book? You know, what kind of arc does it want to have? And I, I don't think I thought it was going to be real until it actually shipped and showed up at my doorstep and I opened the box and I was like, this is an actual book that can be on a bookshelf. Um, yeah. So I, I, th- I think for any kind of person who is a poet trying to put a book together, it's a it's a huge journey and it doesn't you can't quite understand how to do it until you've done it. 
You know what I mean? So were there any particular kind of like muses or motivation? So as you started writing these poems, was there like a, was there like a seed that made you um, go into these poems or was it kind of an organic thing where they all kind of gelled together after a process? Yeah, I think I think for me, poetry begins with writing or sorry, with reading uh, folks I love. So I'm obsessed with Ann Carson. I'm obsessed with T.C. Tolbert and Eduardo C. Corral. Um, I think a lot of these poems are are steeped in, you know, Elizabeth Bishop and Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh, I was obsessed with Franz Wright as an undergrad. So those those were some of my muses. Atal Adnan, I found um, last summer, who's a Lebanese uh, writer, and I'm a, a Lebanese descendant. Um, so I think the poems began in admiring other other writers, and then I think I really began to find my voice um, when I was thinking about just violence in the American landscape. I often find Facebook and you know Twitter, all kinds of social media, and the news as kind of like a horrible muse. Um, I think I'll, I'll see a news event, you know, you know, something that happens like a school shooting and I, I can't, it won't really let go of me until I write about it. Um, so I think in that way, the poems began to collect into separate sections. Um, the first section is basically thinking about the news. The second section is really thinking about queer bodies in nature. And the third section is kind of like, hearkening back to growing up in Michigan. So there's some kind of like Midwestern poems there too. And I think my obsession with science runs throughout the collection too. That was kind of like the thread that ties uh, quite a lot of it together. So out of the poems that you included in this collection, was there um, a poem that you held closest to your heart or one that you felt was kind of like the anchor piece of the, the entire book? Sure. Uh, I think for me, that poem would be nature poem, which, which is in the middle of the book. Uh, it's really interesting because I, I worked with, uh, Jeffrey Nutter, who's a wonderful, uh, mentor for the, for poetry. And we really kind of went back and forth on the poem. And I, I literally, so there was a first version that was maybe six pages long. And now this book is like, or sorry, this poem is 15 pages long. And I thought to myself, if I've written one poem, um, you know, and I'm, and I have to die. Like, I'm so glad that this is the poem that I've written. And that was the single poem that he was like, I don't think it belongs in the collection. It's not working. Um, because I very often work in the lyric and he was, we talked about it and he was very kind about it too. He was just like, I think a poem of this nature needs to be a little bit more undecorated. It needs to read almost, um, just very naked. Um, so Something like that. Um, I worked on that poem in January of 2020, actually passed my book's deadline. I, I road tripped up to Ithaca, New York, to Cornell Library to look through all the special collections, to read the papers of Claudia Brenner, one of the women who were you know involved in this. Um, so Claudia Brenner and Elizabeth, sorry, Rebecca White were hiking the Appalachian Trail when this kind of like mountain man uh, shot at both of them, killing Rebecca, her partner. So I was just incredibly haunted by the story and also challenged by this mentor in a great way to figure out how to write about something that my current style wasn't serving. Um, so that was really wonderful that I, I came up with this new iteration. 
of it. So I think for me, that was the heart or the biggest challenge in the book. Another poem for me that was something that took me a long time to write was American Ammunition, which actually um, memorializes the Pulse shooting. Uh, today is the is the you know the date June twelfth um, where where Pulse happened. Um, this poem started out six pages long, and it's now just two pages in you know in sections in the, in the current book. So I think poems often live with me for a long time, and I don't know how to fix them or finish them. Uh, and a mentor once said that when you're putting a book together, the weight of God sits on it, and you figure things out. And I think I was really grateful for Tolson accepting this book for me to have to figure out poems. Um, I mean, the book was strong enough for them to accept it, but for me to be able to live with the book, there were certain things that I needed to suss out, um, which was awesome. It was a very hard process, but I'm, I'm really proud of these poems. And I'm glad that you brought up nature poem because one of the things that I wanted to ask you about that particular poem was um, how you decided to use that format as well as that evidence tag um, at the very start of it as a way to engage readers in the story and why it was so important for you to include that kind of narrative and that story um, in the poem itself. Sure. I think there's a lot of white space in this book. There's a lot of unadorned page. And I think oftentimes I'll get stuck writing a poem and I can't figure it out until I figure out the form. And then as soon as I have the form, the poem just pours out. Um, so this form, I played around with it quite a bit. And for the most part, it's just two words following each other on the page. Um, I think there's a few sections where there's three words, but it's basically just the two women walking on the trail side by side. And when I was up in the archives at Cornell, I saw this evidence tag. And as a, as a queer woman who's married to another woman, it just, it really devastated me. But I think this could be any women or this could be any person of color walking in nature. It's, it's terrifying that we could sub ourselves or, you know, anyone into this category. And so I think that's why it haunted me for so long is that it's a very universal story. Um, and I felt like I had to get it right in some way uh, to do it justice and to not let people forget um, that these things happen. So in the collection as a whole, you, I think, write with this idea of kind of both muted and very vocal violence. Um, I found that muted violence in the poem Woman, that there's this idea of danger that exists in simply being this built into the fabric of our daily lives, that if you are other in any way that um, that danger is ever present. So when you were approaching the violence that you inclu included in the book, um, how did you kind of like balance the way you wrote it? So it didn't become sensationalized, but it became kind of like another layer to the experience. Yeah, uh, I think... I, so I live in New York City and I'm a woman and I'm a queer woman and I'm married to a woman who's Cuban. And I think all the time, and I'm very protective over people I love, I think all the time there's this undercurrent of kind of patrolling for danger um, in the subway, just, in, you know, just watching folks. And um, right now I'm in the Midwest and people are very kind and very lovely. But uh, I think if you're different in any way, 
you stick out and people ask questions or, or make microaggressions. But I think there is a lot of violence. And I, I think you put it in a wonderful way in the collection of overt violence, but also just the emotional um, and spiritual violence of being challenged even without words. So Woman is a poem where myself and my partner were just riding a train to meet a friend and the train had started to empty out. And there's a person just kind of watching us. And I was reading a book, but it got to be so strange that this guy was just like staring at us. And we had said like what stop we were getting off at because we were just like talking. And when we got off the train, he followed us. And without even speaking, we just kind of looked at each other. And we, we actually took separate exits, went up different stairwells to get away from this guy. And then we immediately saw our friend on the street. And we were both like really shaken. Um, so it's so fascinating that an encounter can happen like that without even words. And I tried to capture that. Um, and I think this one, the form and kind of the rhythm was inspired by Jamaica Kincaid's girl. Um, I just wanted to keep that repetition. Like this is how to, this is, you know, this is how to keep yourself safe in New York. This is how to watch a person who's a threat. This is how, um, to be polite and to not actually confront someone, whatever, whatever politeness means. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I think that that poem itself did such a wonderful job of creating tension but tension in a way that's very palpable to a person who experiences that every day, that it's not a matter of it having to be an unusual occurrence, which in itself is sad, but just something that people actually experience and you never quite pay attention to like the this innate violence of it um, and the fear of it. So in the um, another poem in the, in the collection, On My Back, there's two lines that I kind of highlighted in the, in the collection um, is the opening line of that poem American insults lie in the body and then further into the piece reduction, its own form of bloodshed. And for me, both of them seem to hint at ideas of erasure and even how outside of physical bloodshed, um, it's a killing of spirits and identity. Um, so I wanted to know if you could speak to how you approach giving a voice and eyes to those who may not have them. So whether that be other by queerness or other by race or ethnicity, like how you approached making sure those voices were both seen and heard in the collection. Yeah. American insults lie in the body. That line comes from, um, I was, I was in um, French Canada uh, and we were talking about swear words. So, I mean, I might not remember all, all of this correctly, but in, in French, uh, at least French Canadian, there's, there's a lot of words uh, that, or don't make sense to Americans because they're like tabernacle. They're like pieces of Catholic tradition that are used as swear words. So we were thinking, you know, so what are American swear words and what is American slang? They're often body parts. Um, you know, we can think through them in our heads right now. Um, so I, I really thought about that. Like American insults lie in the body. They're very bodily. Um, and then the other part of this poem is thinking about erasure a hundred percent. I think as a queer person, you know, I'll often be introduced as visiting from another place by myself, or I'm, you know, encouraged to just post about myself on social media, you know, with good intentions, people are coming at me that way. But I think if you're asking a person to enter a space without all of themselves and their identity, that's exhausting. And, um, 
I think my queerness is something to celebrate. Um, this poem is kind of in conversation with nature versus nature as well, which births the collection where the heart of this poem is basically before I was born, I was gay. I was this way, whatever, whatever gay is at the birth of the universe was present. Um, and I think we have to, or part of the project of my life is to celebrate my queerness, to be uh, fully embodied and bring that into the every space that I can, um, and to not have someone erase that part of my life that is so essential, that is my marriage. Um, I'm glad that we're kind of on the subject of erasure, um, because there's another um, very specifically formatted piece in the collection, which is um, the Blackout poem on receiving a homophobic letter, a series of erasures. Um, and I thought that it was beautiful because it turned the words back towards the author of the actual letter and forces them to deal with another avenue of their interpretation. So they're approaching the speaker as these are the things I feel. And then the speaker is turning those ideas right back onto them. Um, and so I think that the poem itself did an amazing job that was sadly needed of turning hate into something beautiful. <laughs> so I wanted to know um, kind of how did the poem come to be? Like, where did the letter come from? Um, and what was your intention on creating that poem itself? Sure. So uh, two years ago, well, I have to think about it now. I guess it was actually 2016. Uh, my partner and I got engaged and we we're um, we were engaged for two years because planning a wedding in New York City is ridiculous. So we sent out wedding invitations um, and, you know, we got a little bit of fan mail back. And my first thought when I got the letter was, oh, boy, this is going to be interesting. And I opened the letter and it actually, the contents were basically benign, just kind of witnessing to me and things. But I felt this overpowering sense of shame and it felt like a private shame. And I thought about throwing away the letter, but then I thought if I throw the way, if I throw away the letter, I'm still going to live with this feeling. So I kept the letter and I took it to work with me the next day. And it felt like almost like a poison. Um, to have to type it. So I turned on a podcast um, with, it was Rachel Zucker and C.A. Conrad speaking, and it felt like church. C.A. Conrad for me is kind of like a healer. So I listened um, to C.A.'s words in, you know, in the background and, and typed this letter as much as I could without really hearing it again. And then the first thing I did was I blacked out my name, kind of like take my name out of your mouth. You don't really know me. If, if this is the kind of letter that you're going to send me. So the first blackout poem I wrote is actually the third in the collection. That's just all about love because there was so much love in the letter. And then the second one I wrote was the one that was that ends. I plead to you go against the fullness you were meant to have. In, you know, in some way, just saying your reading of my life is a misinterpretation. And then for the second one, it's just silly and playful. So I thought I was just going to do one erasure of that text, but I ended up with three different erasures of the same text. And it felt like a reclamation. It felt like I had made something from this letter that I could now own. And I also felt like these types of letters don't need to be a private shame. As a writer, you know, I can make something of this. This is a person who wrote me a letter and signed their name. So even even in the spirit of just playfulness, I made this erasure and it made me feel so much better to exercise my my muscles as a writer. 
And when I read this at readings, very often people will come up to me and say, you know, I've gotten mail like this before and it feels really painful and I don't know what to do with it. So thank you for, you know, giving me this idea that I can create and, you know, add my own voice to this conversation. So there was another kind of um, idea of erasure that is tied into another poem here. So like I, I found this kind of thread between nature poem um, and the blackout poems and also the poem when I was a boy, I thought that the subtle switch in that poem um, was beautifully done. And I read it as like this separation between childhood and assigned gender roles that is so innate that people assume that it has to be, that there was a change from the freedom and strength in the images of the stunt bikes, the thorns and the snakes. And at the end of the poem, readers are um, moved to this view of a rosebud, something that's quite not open. Um, it's still very delicate. And I think that that erases the vastness and the possibility of the prior imagery. Um, so I wanted you to kind of speak to what considerations you gave to not only the images in this poem, but also as a whole in the collection, like, what things did you want to highlight for readers or what images were important for you to include? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and you, and you've read when I was a boy really well, I think there was so much freedom in my childhood. It was so, it was almost genderless of just riding bikes and being friends. And, you know, we were so much in nature. And then there was a moment where I was on a playground where suddenly there's a recess monitor who said, you know, if you're, unless you're wearing an undershirt, you need to wear a coat. And then a boy looked down my shirt just to see if I was wearing an undershirt. But for me, that was that first moment of separation, that there are assigned gender roles, that I am different from the boys that I loved playing with. Um, for me in this book, I think there's a lot of images that revolve around the universe, that revolve around science. There's flowers in the book. Um that are kind of replacing bullets in the American ammunition poem. I think the poems work across a kind of tension between violence and tenderness and radical vulnerability and danger, which I think often are the things that push and pull us through our everyday lives. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of birds and, and trucks and dandelions and the moon is in here. There's, I guess, the images of the everyday. And I think there's that cognitive dissonance that's always running in my mind between having a really great day and then, you know, seeing something in the news or having a really, really strange experience on the train and then being expected to go into a party like nothing has happened. I'm glad you kind of mentioned the um, idea of like the everyday, because as you're moving into the third section of the book, um, you mentioned earlier um, that each section is kind of distinct into itself. And so when I got to that third section, the first thing I thought was that you have um, this telescoping and expanding in your work, um, that you have this great ability to pull readers into very personal stories, but also relay them in a way that is very um, universal. So you're kind of looking at these individual situations, but then readers are still able to put themselves into that driver's seat. And I think that comes to bear in pieces such as sympathetic headache. Um, so when you're kind of relating these poems into in the third section, how are you um, using the very personal familial type stories to then relate universal experience? 
Yeah, I think about that a lot. I think about how my life relates to other people's lives too. And something like sympathetic headache. Um, I think I, I think I often start with a very small moment. Like the third section of that poem is just looking at my own rotator cuff. Um, it's frayed fl- fibers, you know, wisp of wool, white signal amid black signal. And then just moving to this greater idea of my undoing, the careless whim of a dandelion spur. It's kind of just transported into this otherness, into this larger, like, macrocosm of the world. Um, I guess I think about, especially in this current moment right now, how we're all not so different um, and that everyone is trying to tell us to be very divided right now. But I think the most, like, a very radical thing we can do is to say we're all, you know, are much more similar than we think we are if we really just sit with each other and think. And, you know, me writing from my, my apartment, there's, there's a lot of universality, um, that we can find in our, in our own lives too. So I guess that is a project of the poems. And maybe I stumbled into that, into taking a small moment for my life and, and trying to relate it to others. Um, but I, I guess that is kind of the project of the book too, to say this very specific event happened to me or to someone else, but there's something that we can all uh, gain from from reading each other's work. So reading your work as well kind of gives like a definite sense of place. Um, as we started talking about at the very beginning, you're originally from Michigan, but now you live in New York. Um, and I'm a person who's originally from Ohio who lives in Philadelphia. So there are markedly different worlds when you go kind of from a rural um, area to like a major city. Um, so in a poem like Blake, which is very much rooted in something earthier versus the poem 60 Year Slide, which touches on the idea of industry. Um, it's interesting to see how where you are from um, can inform the work. So when you're crafting your poems, um, how are you finding a way to honor where you are from and then where you are currently or where you hope to go? Yeah, when I think about the Midwest, I think about, you know, I, I grew up here, I went to high school, I graduated from college, and then I moved to New York. And I think while I was in the Midwest, I was like, oh, I'm bored. There's not much going on. It's so quiet here. And I, I really embraced New York City, how busy it was, um, how much uh, stimulation was there. And my writing kind of exploded when I moved to New York. But then I started writing about the Midwest. Um, I started writing about you know, the taste of venison or, you know, what does fresh cut grass smell like? Um, I'm here right now just for a little bit of time and the bullfrogs are really loud. And that's a sound that I haven't heard in, you know, I've, I've been out of the, out of Michigan for 11 years. So I think that distance allowed me to write about certain aspects of Michigan that I had overlooked and I also think there's a really good tension between them too. You know, the the speed of New York City. There's so much um, the demands on our time. Like I'm a teacher. I run office hours writing workshop. Um, I participate in a lot of, you know, poetry readings and attend them. And then when I come to Michigan, my parents live in this very small lake community where the stoplight in, in town, I'm using scare quotes, uh, goes off at 8 p.m. It's just a blinking light. And I haven't been meditating as much through apps on my phone since I've been here, but I'll catch myself, you know, looking at the lake 
looking at the different, the ruffles on the lake from the wind or noticing the sunspots on a tree. Or the other day I watched a red-breasted robin pull an earthworm from the ground and fly away. So I think place definitely informs my work. And each place is kind of like a mirror to reflect the other one back. I was going to ask you that, actually. I was going to ask is, as you're back in Michigan, um, do you find that there are parts of you that you are able to let free in New York that you aren't able to do in Michigan? Or is it kind of the opposite, that there are parts of you that exist in Michigan that can't exist for whatever reason in New York? I think I try to be myself wherever I am um, as much as I can. But I think I play up my Michigan parts in New York where I'm just like, oh, yeah, like my dad will like knock down this deer in the yard or something or like, I don't know. Everyone thinks that I'm just like this very like mountain woman that knows everything about rural life. And then when I come to Michigan, I think I'm like this big city kid that's like a workaholic that's always like, you know, on Zoom doing things. But I think it is difficult identity wise too. like the the smaller of an area that you get to out in communities, they're less diverse. Um, and I think there are just like small microaggressions that weigh on you also. Um, just very small questions that you get or, you know, on a phone call, if you're, you know, it's, it's said that I'm visiting and, and, you know, your partner isn't introduced, but I think for the most part, people are lovely and, um, I think we're all just getting used to each other again. Like I've been gone for 11 years um, and my family is truly wonderful. And I'm really excited to be here with this wide open space. So that you're in Michigan, um, it kind of makes me move to my second, my, my next question is idea of poems like 60 years slide again and the poem epigrams um, almost feel like a family album or a home movie because it seems that each of them has like a catalog of lives, places, experiences that are set into amber. And in, I wanted to know, in some ways, do you believe that you're creating a memoir via poetry or memorializing ways of life before they disappear? Definitely, especially like 60 Year Slide. Uh, that was a poem that I was writing while my grandmother was very sick. She was in her 90s. Um, and I think there's just a particular moment that was the catalyst for that poem to where um, I'm a runner and I've, I've run six marathons and I, I don't know how much water I drink per day, but my grandma was only allowed like six ounces of water per hour. And she was so thirsty. She was constantly thirsty that it made me burn with thirst just being in the room with her. Um, and as she was getting sicker and sicker, I wanted to know more and more of her story of what was it like to, you know, to be a Polish. Her, her mother was a Polish immigrant to Hamtramck in Detroit. Uh, my grandma was fluent in Polish and in English and her husband uh, was Polish also. And so I, I was so hungry for their stories. You know, what was it like where, you know, where you lived in Hamtramck? What was it like when you moved out to the lake? And I definitely am trying to preserve these stories in Amber. Both of my grandmas are named Dorothy, which is funny. So, um, and you know, epigrams for Dorothy is my mom's side of the family who I love dearly and would spend time with her. And I, I definitely was trying to capture some of her essence on the page. Um, my undergrad thesis was called A Memory for Dorothy, because as she was losing her memories to dementia, I was just as quickly trying to write them down. 
That's um, actually beautiful. I think sometimes that people don't consider poetry memoir. Um, it, it really is. It's just in a different format, especially depending on your subject matter. So as we're starting to kind of wind down a little bit, I wanted to ask you about the science that you included in the collection um, in a poem such as like Earth 2018. It's like we get this view of the destruction of the planet, but also a distant view of space with like a sense of longing and concern. Because sometimes like, I guess now in 2020, we still have that view of space through like SpaceX, but down here on the actual planet, things are rapidly falling apart. Um, Do you think that in some ways space and science will become like the next like horizon of colonization or elite flight if it ever becomes possible? Um, I think science for me is this wonderful like respite from the whole world. I think especially living in New York City and you know we have these modern lives, we're moving so quickly that we just don't notice. We just don't see what's here. We don't really see our impact. And I think COVID-19, you know, with sending everyone indoors, um, there's this resurgence of noticing the natural world, of noticing our impact also. Um, so I think in that way, if, if it had to happen, I think it's wonderful that we are noticing that we're really becoming more aware of the natural world. Um, I hope we don't colonize anything else. We need to figure out our home planet first. But for me, science was kind of born out of, um, I'm kind of bad at science and math. I was just a bad student of it. I love it. I love to read books about it, but I would score really badly in classes. Um, so at one point I just gave myself permission to write about science and to write about things that I wasn't good at in school. Um, and I think it's really important. And I see this next generation coming up, thinking about the planet. They're really thinking about our footprint and how we can live in step with the natural world instead of, you know, capitalize on as much of it as we can. And I think that's where we find our healing. If we're able to live more in harmony with each other on the planet and more in harmony with all the systems that were here long before us and that will live long after us. And that brings me to my last question. Um, The actual closing line of the collection, which is we are a vast assembly of nerve cells and continents longing for each other has such um, a current, a place in the current world. So like none of what is happening right now is new. This upheaval is a long time coming and very necessary. Um, so in both literature and society at large, what kind of things do you think we fundamentally need, um, whether it be at a human level or um, a creative level to kind of continue to push forward into the next phase of our lives? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we need to recognize that People are different. There is difference. I don't think we can pave over things or be colorblind or, you know, just say we're all the same person or, you know, we all have the same experience. I think we have to honor each other's radical differences. And if I don't understand something, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It means I need to sit back and listen um, and, and respect another person and, and lend my, my body and my ideas and my spirit to people who I really want to support and love and care about. Um, I think at a time where we're supposed to be more divided than ever, uh, 
this young generation is is showing us the way forward. And I think we need to listen. And for our listeners, is there any particular piece from the book you would like to share or any reading recommendations you would like um, recommendations you'd like to give us before we go? Um, sure. I am right now, you know, everyone's reading Jericho Brown. Um, wonderful. He just, you know, won the Pulitzer. Uh, but I'm, I'm going through the tradition. Uh, I teach essay writing uh, as a profession. So I think White Fragility is a wonderful book to read by Robin D'Angelo. Uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist is Selling Out Right Now by Ibram X. Kendi. I think that's fantastic. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's Pride Month also. You know, support your, support your queer authors, support um, poets that you, who you love. If you're not a poetry reader, buy a book and support anyway, you know, donate it to a library or um, give it to a friend also. Um, but I think absolutely we need, if you can be reading, right. Um, I grew up as a reader. I live with a family of readers. Um, and I think reading make us, makes us more empathetic toward each other. It does. Um, and for our listeners who want to find you online, um, is there a particular account where they can find you, other places they can read your work? Sure. I have an Instagram. I'm at Sarah M. Sala. Uh, I also have a website, www.sarahsala.com. Um, yeah, you can write to me via my website also. I'm, I'm available to do all the online readings. And the book is out August 11th? August 11th through Tolson Books. Uh, if you order through their website, they're releasing it early. So you can basically order and you'll have it within a week or so. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me and for taking the, the time to, you know, read this book so thoroughly Thank and carefully. Um, so I'm Athena Dixon, a co-host of the New Books and Poetry podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.